0: Good morning everyone uh moving on to the next chapter um chapter sixteen education um, this is a, as most of the other chapters are very few that are not um, hating to use this term all that important but um of what you're reading in this book is is very important. Education, obviously, is one of them. Um, And let's start off with this. Let's start off with giving you what um, the definition of education is um, according to Dr. Schaefer. And let me give you my definition. And I'll explain that very, very um, briefly. Schaefer says on page 360, uh, when learning is explicit and formalized, when some people consciously teach, while others adapt the role of learner, the process of socialization is called education. Okay. Teachers teach, students learn. Let me now give you mine. Education is the transference of knowledge. It's easier. It's more compact. It's straight to the point. Uh, I am not trying to cause a line of divide between me and and the... Uh, and the great uh, author, Dr. Schaefer. But to me, transference of knowledge is something that is more direct. Um, Four words, the transference of knowledge. Saying that is that all that education is. Is it just... Your instructor, giving you information over a lecture series, and you as the student, understand as best as you can, what that information is all about. Isn't there something more? Well, there is. And that's something more um, is within the scope of the next several pages in our text on chapter 16. I want to go through a few of them. Um, And what I believe are the most important ones. And that's what I'll do. I will go over the most important ones as I believe they are. Still, this is not telling you again, as I've stated before, not to read the whole chapter, but I would like to co- you to concentrate on particular parts and that would be the driving force behind uh, the title and the information in that chapter of what it's all about. This chapter, again, is about education. And again, and again, and again, the idea of how the sociological view, our views, are dictated to us. Scientific study of human behavior in groups and how we understand and react to those situations. And how we get to know these groups of people. So let's start with understanding a few things. Uh, The sociological perspectives of education, I mean they're surrounded by different theories and different schools of thought within the the confines of sociology. You have the uh, functionalist view, talked about that before. Uh, Again, uh, functionalism is, again, exactly what it says. To be functional. What functional ways in which these theorists believe that a certain topic should not only be defined, but understood. We have the conflict view. Conflict view is a argumentative view, a view that is looked at in a particular way of conflict because they don't agree with the other theories, even within their own scope of uh, of study. So, conflict views are the, the conflict theorists are. The people who say, um, well, no, that's not black, that's white. No, that's not up, that's down. You're in conflict with how the interpretive value of any theory is and how, how each and every one of those conflict theorists uh, have a different view. It's like if you gave um, um, a judge uh, a law... Many judges, as a matter of fact, and you had them all in a room and there was a dozen or two dozen of them, and you gave them some law more than likely, each and every one of those judges would have a different view doesn't mean it 's a conflict view, but it's certainly not the view that maybe uh, most people might think of because there's going to be a couple of those in there so within the scope of that, everyone is different for how they are different and how they interpret things and certain people have a conflict with a general idea about what a theory on something like education is. And finally there's the feminist view. Well, the feminist view um, surrounds itself with the idea of the <clears throat> discrimination against women and how they have been treated and the idea of how education has treated them. So Feminist and Feminism obviously is trying to foster a theory that supports females. So, there you have the three that we'll talk about. Let's go back here now. <clears throat> Some of this is, is pretty easily understood. Uh, so, let's go back to the functionalist view. Like all other social institutions, education has both manifest, open, manifest means open, and stated. And latent or uh, hidden functions. So education has open, stated, which are um, <clears throat> which are basic uh, functions, and uh, latent or hidden. So we have two. We have that manifest and latent functions that education has. The most basic manifest function of education is the transmission of knowledge. The most basic. So remember what I said, uh, is that all education is? Well, no, because there's other things involved. And as we go along, we're going to see something here. Transmission of knowledge. I use transference. A little different. A little different. So the functionalists start off with uh, trying for us to understand transmitting culture. As a social institution, education performs a rather conservative function transmitting the dominant culture. Culture. Schooling exposes each generation of young people to the existing beliefs, norms, and values of their culture. In our society, we learn to respect for we learn to respect for social control, uh, reverence for established institutions such as religion, the family, and the presidency. The United States. Excuse me. Of course, uh, the statement is true. Many uh, in many other cultures. Well, school children in the United States are learning about accomplishments of George Washington, and Abraham Lincoln. British children are learning about Queen Elizabeth and Winston Churchill. So, just the mere fact that we're learning about different personalities, uh, different cultures. Again, is education just? a transference of knowledge. What is it? Sometimes nations uh, reassess the ways in which they transmit cultures to students. Recently, the Chinese government revised the nation's history now taught that the Chinese Communist Party not the United States played a central role in defeating Japan in World War II so you know when we talk about this understanding of transmission of culture or transmitting culture we need to understand that one of the other things education talks about and how we understand it where we come from, our culture. Extremely important. We go on by talking about promoting social and political integration. That's the next idea and part of the theory of functionalism. Many institutions require students in their first year or two of college to live on campus to foster a sense of community among diverse groups. Education serves the latent function. Remember now, latent function is the idea of that being a hidden function. Latent is hidden. Uh, the late function of promoting social and political integration by transforming a population composed of diverse racial and ethnic and religious groups into a society whose members share, to some extent, a common identity. That common identity, ladies and gentlemen, is the higher institution where you are. One of the really excellent things about... Higher education, especially college life on campus, is the sharing of these cultures together, race, religion, ethnic background, I, I would certainly uh, put in there because of 2000, the 2010s here, we're going into the 20s pretty soon, gender affiliation. I would also put in there um, the idea of uh, physical needs and mental and emotional needs. So there's a few more things that should be added there that I would tell you to make note of. Historically, schools in the United States have played an important role in socializing the children of immigrants into the norms, values, and beliefs of the dominant culture. From the functionalist perspective, the common identity and social integration fostered by education contribute to the societal stability and a consensus. That was from Terrain 1974. Well, if you're an immigrant, you're coming from another country, and you're either going to stay or go back, um, this, the process is the same to get you to understand a bit more about the culture, the norms, the values of the culture where you are. Hence, you have come to the United States for uh, higher education, and uh, you want to have some type of idea of how it works. Hence education will teach us that. Hopefully, hopefully. That's the theory. Maintaining social control. Another phase. And performing the manifest function, that's the open function not late and this is the one we, we we see all the time the manifest function open are stated the manifest function of transmitting knowledge schools go far beyond teaching skills like reading writing and mathematics like other social institutions such as the family and religion education prepares young people to lead productive, and orderly lives as adults by introducing them to the norms, values, and sanctions of the larger society. And you're going to see that come up all the time, whether it's talking about education or any other phase or any other theory or any other interests we have that form our culture, meaning the idea of family, religion, and education and how we introduce people to the idea of what the norms and values are, what the laws of our country are, and the sanctions if you don't follow them. Through the exercise of social control, schools teach students various skills and values essential to their future positions in the labor force. They learn punctuality, discipline, scheduling, and responsible work habits, as well as how to negotiate the complexities of a bureaucratic organization. Schools direct and even restrict students' aspirations in a manner that reflects society values and prejudices. School administrators may allocate ample funds for athletic programs, but give much less support to music, art, and dance. I've always had a problem with that one, unfortunately. But unfortunately, here in the United States, that's how the wheel goes round. Right, ladies and gentlemen? Is not that correct? It's how the wheel goes round. We, we spend all this money on athletics because it makes us money. Go on, on on any campus of any leading institution and see... Where the money goes, lots of it comes from sports. If you don't know that by now, you do know it now. Hundreds of millions of dollars from every large college that is involved in any of the major sports and even the minor sports. but not so much for the arts, which I believe should get their fair share. And the reason they don't get their fair share, they don't generate the money that football, baseball, basketball, hockey, uh, track and field, those sports generate for the school. Serving as an agent of change so far, we have focused on conservative functions of education, on its role in transmitting the existing culture, promoting social and political organizations, and maintaining social control. Yet, education can also stimulate or bring about desired social change. Sex education classes were introduced to the public schools in response to soaring pregnancies, pregnancy rates among teenagers. Affirmative action in, in admissions, giving priority to females or minority, has been endorsed as a means of countering racial and sexual discrimination. Project Head Start, as an early childhood program that serves more than nine hundred eight thousand children, has sought to compensate for the disadvantages disadvantages in school readin- readiness experienced by children from low-income families. That was from the Bureau of Census 10 years ago. Let's add the LBGT community, because that's starting to be something that schools do freely. Having lectures and speeches, informal gatherings in auditoriums of higher education because of the discrimination factor because of the discrimination factor so let's understand that and listen we all know that that the, uh, these colleges are not lily white we all know that there is there are still prejudices that go around but what we also know is that making certain forward strides in trying to give more information, trying to get people to accept the culture and the people who surround it, no matter who you are. Let's go on. Let's go to our next theory. Conflict view. Again, the conflict theorists. Um, they're they're a different breed, and it's it's really positive and helpful that we have them, because we need that conflict. Because we need people to react to conflict, theoretically speaking. But. Not in the way of physical violence, but theoretically speaking, we want people to think. And uh, because someone has such a adverse view than you do, maybe it makes you think a bit more. Starts off on page um, 363 by saying the functionalist perspective portrays contemporary education as a basically benign institution. For example, it argues that schools rationally sort and select students for future high-status positions, thereby meeting society's needs for talented and expert personnel. In contrast, though, in contrast. The conflict perspective views education as an instrument of elite domination. Conflict theorists point out that the sharp inequalities that exist and the educational opportunities available to different racial and ethnic groups. In 2004, the, na- the nation marked its 50th anniversary of the Supreme Court's landmark decision Brown versus the Board of Education. That was 2004, that was 15 years ago. That was the 50th anniversary, 15 years ago. The 20th anniversary is this year, a coming. 15 more years. We're talking about 65 years ago, come 2020. Brown versus the Board of Education, which declared unconstitutional the segregation of public schools. Yet our schools are still characterized by racial isolation. Nationwide, white students are are the most isolated. Only 23% of their classmates come from minority groups. And that was 2004, uh, 2005, and 2006. In comparison, Black and Latino students have more <clears throat> classmates from different racial and ethnic backgrounds. Through the through, they typically do not include whites. Conflict theorists argue that the educational system socializes students into values dictate dictated by powerful <coughs> by the powerful excuse me that schools stifle individualism and creativity in the same maintaining order and the level of change they promote is relatively insignificant from a conflict perspective the inhibiting effects of education are particularly apparent in the hidden curriculum in the different way in which status is bestowed, are bestowed. If any of you have gone to school formally and not just taking online classes, what the conflict theorist is trying to say is that although functionalists want to believe that everybody is together How true is that? How true is it? You still have the white culture for a large segment grouping itself together. You have other cultures, Asian cultures, the black culture, the, the Latino culture grouping themselves together. Conflict theorists say, you know, we're supposed to be surrounding ourselves by all cultures and integrating those cultures together in higher education. (coughs) Are we really doing that? Think about it. Maybe something you might want to find out. Maybe uh, take uh, half an hour of your time in research and see what it has to say. Then at the end, you know, Schaeffer throws this thing on hidden curriculum. Uh, And um, I really like him for it because, uh, you know, what's a hidden curriculum? Oh, my God. Well, it says here, and what he says is the hidden curriculum refers to standards of behavior that are deemed proper by society, now taught subtly, in schools. According to this curriculum, children must not speak until teacher calls on them. Now we're talking about more than likely something a little lower than than, um, higher education, but doesn't that transfer, if I can use that word, to higher education? According to this curriculum, children must not speak until teachers call on them and must regulate their activities according to a clock or bells. In addition, they are expected to concentrate on their work rather than assist other students who learn more slowly. A hidden curriculum is evident in schools around the world, for example, Japanese school offer guidance sessions that seek to improve the classroom experience and develop healthy living, living skills. In effect, these sessions will instill values and encourage behavior useful in the Japanese business world, such as self-discipline and openness to group problem solving and decision making. That study was done in 1999, 20 years ago. Is that still true today? As a matter of fact, is that hidden curriculum true here in the United States? Are we still doing that? Have you taken classes where all the the, uh, instructor, associate professor, professor saying, listen, we're going to have, this is how this works. I'll be up here and I'll be... um, talking about a particular subject matter and, and that uh, you need to listen and take notes and then I will write on the board and uh, you have to at least copy or paraphrase the most important parts of those so you understand what I'm trying to teach you. Example have a professor of history Reading about the Roman Empire. Okay? Write down the most important things, so forth and so on. And oh, I have your tape recorder, or oh, I have your phone, or whatever it is. Make sure you get it all. Then he read certain uh, events on the board of the Roman Empire, the fall of the Roman Empire, and what happened there. Student raises their hand. Teacher turns around and said, "Please put your hand down. I'm not done speaking. No, no questions in the classroom. No questions in the classroom. Really? I don't have that value to ask a question. Now, I'm not saying that happens all the time. Does it happen?" <clears throat> Review your own conscience. View any time you've taken a class. Has that ever happened? Think about how a teacher integrates students into a classroom. Are they free to think? Do they have what I call value interpretation? Do they have discussion? What do they have? Are you just listening and mocking down what the teacher says. An interesting scenario. Conflict theorists go on talking about the bestowal of status. Sociologists have long recognized that schooling is central to social stratification. Both functionalist and conflict theories agree that education performs the important function of bestowing status. Your status. You graduate from four-year school. You get a, a BA or an MA in whatever course of study you took. You go on to get a master's degree, whatever course of study you have taken. BA, now MA. You go on and you you want to become a doctor of that particular study. Uh, course of study. Now you have a B.A., you have an M.A., and you have a Ph.D. Bestowal of status. It's your status. Your professor, your mister, your doctor, so-and-so. Status. Status. Whether you believe it or don't believe it or I don't care about it, it's a true Factor in the idea of what you as an individual want from education. How long do you want to stay in school? How much do you want to know? Do you want to teach? Do you want to go out to a job that will pay you good money because you have these credentials and you've had a, a work background that leads to these? It's a good point to make. As not earlier, really an increasing proportion of people in the United States are obtaining high school diplomas, college degrees, and advanced professional degrees. From a functionalist perspective, <clears throat> this widens the Bastal status is beneficial not only to a particular recipient, but to society as a whole. According to Kingsley Davis and Wilbert Moore in nineteen forty five, society must contribute its members distribute, excuse me, <coughs> must distribute its members among a variety of social positions. Education can contribute to the process by sorting people into appropriate levels in courses of study and will prepare them <coughs> for positions in the labor force. Conflict theorists are far more critical of the differential ways in which education bestows status, the stress that schools sort pupils according to the social class backgrounds to their social class backgrounds. Although the educational system helps certain poor children to move into middle-class professional positions, it denies most disadvantaged children the same educational opportunities afforded to children (coughs) that are affluent. (coughs) Let's put it this way. There uh, There are more rich people going to Harvard than poor people. The poor people have the opportunity to go. Absolutely. Uh, Are they more likely to get into Harvard uh, as a poor person than someone who is rich? Not on your life. But they set aside a portion of their school for children who can't afford it. Conflict theory say that's discrimination. Especially if the student has the same average in, after four years of high school. Think about it. Same intelligence, same class setting, same results on college board. Exams. Who gets in? Finally, let's talk about feminism. The educational system of the United States, like many other social institutions, has long characterized by discriminatory treatment to women. In 1833, uh, Oberlin College became the first institution of higher learning to admit female students some two over 200, excuse me, some 200 years after the first men's college was established. But Oberlin believed that women should aspire to become wives and mothers, not lawyers and, and intellectuals. In the 20th century, sexism in education showed up in many ways and textbooks with negative stereotypes of women, counselors, uh, pressure on female students to prepare for women's work, and unequal funding for women's and men's athletic programs. But perhaps nowhere in education more discrimination is evident than employment of teachers. The positions of every university professor and college administrator which hold relatively high status in the United States were generally filled by men. Public school teachers who earn much lower lower salaries were largely females. Much has been made of the superior academic achievements of girls and women. Today, researchers are beginning to examine the reasons for their comparatively strong performance in school, uh, or to put it another way, for men's lackluster performance. Some studies suggest that women's aggressiveness, together with the fact that they do better in the workplace than women, even with less schooling predisposes them to undervalue higher education while the absence of men of many college in many college campuses has captured headlines it has also created false crisis in public discourse. Few students realize that their potential exclusively through formal education um, and other factors such as ambition, personal talent that contribute to their success, as many students, including in lower-income immigrant children, face greater challenges than the so-called gender gap in education. Women have had an uphill battle since the beginning of time, and it's no more prevalent Than in higher education in certain areas, but no more prevalent in how much money each of them make by the time they finish their college education. Today, as we speak, women make 30 percent less than men do in any major job. Fortune 500. The last time I checked, and I'm not going to say I checked recently, within the last year, that's still a good barometer. Fortune 500 companies. How many CEOs? How many chairmen of the boards are female? Last I checked, out of the 500 companies, there were 23 females. 23. I would ask you to check that out. Uh, this has been an interesting talk with you. Um, I'm asking you to, to make sure you read the whole chapter and as always, um, understand the best you can. And as always, If you have any questions about education, Chapter 16, or any others, um, you have my email. You have a good day.